Turn in your Bibles, please, to Psalm 109. As you're turning there, have you ever been troubled by God's Word? That you have read a passage and in so reading were either so confused by the text or so offended by the text or so troubled by what you read that you paused and perhaps even got stuck. Well, Psalm 109 is a troublesome word of God. It has troubled the church. It has troubled believers for many a century. I want to point out to you as we read, verses 6 through 20 are the verses that appear most troubling. So please, as I read... Would you pay very, very careful attention to them? To the choir master, a psalm of David. So let me say this as I begin reading, that during periods of the history of God's people, this was meant to be sung communally before God. Now hang on to that thought as we read. Psalm 109. Be not silent, O God of my praise. For the wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me. Speaking against me with lying tongues, they encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man against him, And let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. And let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse, let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing, may it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as with his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake. Because of your steadfast love, 
because your steadfast love is good. Deliver me, for I am poor and needy. My heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. With my mouth I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. This is the word of the Lord. May he help us indeed. Psalm 109 is hauntingly beautiful, but I would suggest to you that it is also frightening. We call it an imprecatory psalm because of its harsh and condemning language of judgment. Language like this in the scripture is troublesome and has been for the whole history of the church. Psalm 109 has the strongest and the longest imprecatory language in all of scripture. It is inspired language that was to have been sung before the Lord, which is a very sobering thought. The essence of our struggle with the language of this psalm is this. How does the Christian square the language of Psalm 109 with the royal law of love of our Lord? Bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse them. How do we square this language? with the royal law of love. Well, as New Testament era readers, this side of the cross, listen, we need to be careful to clearly hear the cries of David and the injustice that he has suffered while remembering that David did not have the full story of the gospel as you and I have. The Psalms are meant to evoke a passionate engagement of our souls, of our imaginations, of our emotions with the real stuff of this fallen world. Now let me say a point that applies to many of us here. Many of us, because we live in the United States, we live in upper income brackets, we live in good neighborhoods, we have been well educated. Many of us, we have been protected from extraordinary injustices. But that is not the case for so many people. It is not the case of so many of God's people. And this language here of David reminds us that grave injustices to God's people happen all the time. 
And we must learn to listen to the cries of those who suffer. We cannot nor ought we to dismiss David's cries lightly. These passages we might be tempted to preemptively criticize. They are there in part to awaken us to those atrocities and to those injustices, to the visceral response of the psalmist. And the more that we see that, the more that we will be humbled by what a gospel response means for us in the midst of grave injustice. Dr. Derek Kidner, who writes beautifully of the Psalms, said the following, The psalmists, in their eagerness for judgment, call upon God to hasten it. The gospel, by contrast, shows God's eagerness to save, but also reveals new depths and immensities of God's judgment. So what the psalmist will sometimes call for in personal retribution for his mistreatment, the New Testament shows us that God will bring in full and sweeping and intimate final judgment upon all who deserve it. Kinder goes on to say, the New Testament then, so far from minimizing the role of judgment, increases its gravity, listen, at the same time as it removes it from the sphere of private reprisal. It's an important distinction. We'll press this home a little bit more as we go along. So the purpose then in part of Psalm 109, is to function in the economy of redemptive history to clearly articulate these injustices of evil and of the evil done to the children of the Lord. But the approach of the psalmists cannot be ours in an unqualified sense because of the coming of our Savior and of the cross. In the age of the cross, in the age of the resurrection, in the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit... We are called to suffer for Christ, to suffer with Christ, to suffer as he did, though not redemptively, but to suffer as gospel embodiment, to suffer as the embodiment of the gospel as God's people. You remember the language when we hear of Jesus Peter and Paul both tell us this in different words, that when he was reviled, he reviled not. That is gospel embodiment. When we are reviled, when we suffer injustice, our response is not to revile in return. We are to pray for those who mistreat us. We are to heap burning coals in their laps By feeding our enemy, we are to repay evil with good. All of this, the language of the New Testament. So how better might we understand David as he speaks this language? Dr. Jim Boyce gives four helpful insights, and I'll close uh, the introduction with these four things. First of all, remember that David is writing as a king. Notice the introduction to the choir master, a psalm of David. David is not writing as a mere private citizen. 
Attacks on David were attacks on the kingdom of God. They were attacks on God's righteousness. They were attacks on God's covenant plans. And therefore, David is not speaking as a mere private citizen. That's important to remember. Secondly, David leaves, even though he speaks words of extraordinary vindictiveness here in this psalm, he leaves the vindication of his life and the judgment in the hands of God. Now remember, in the life of David, multiple times we hear of David's long-suffering mercy. Do you remember twice he was within inches of being able to kill Saul And we are told that he would not raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. Do you remember when David was running from Jerusalem in the affairs with his son? A man named Shimei was cursing him from the hillside and throwing stones at him. And David could have easily had part of his guard run up the hill and kill Shimei. And he declined. He said, perhaps, as it were in my language, this is the Lord's doing and has sent this man to curse me. We read in Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. So do notice then that in this psalm, though David speaks in language that we would tremble to take on our own lips, he leaves the vindication of his own life and the actual judgment of these persons to the hand of God. Third, it is just and it is right for us as believers to long for justice to be done and for the wicked to be punished. That is a righteous thing. Every time you pray for justice, do you know what you are praying for? You are praying that the hour will come when the God who sees every injustice that has ever been perpetrated on the people of God that he will right that wrong in the last hour. When you pray for justice, that's what you're praying for, and nothing less. Fourth and last, in the gospel age in which we live and interpret this psalm, it means many things, but two in particular. That we ought to long for the conversion of those whom we see as the wicked and and as the evil, as those who do not love the law of God. Indeed, they despise the law of God and despise the very person of God. We ought to pray for their conversion rather than their destruction before we do anything else. Now, I, I don't want to suggest the ways in which you might be doing that, but think about the present culture in which we live and all of the many avenues in which culture seems to be attacking truth. Have you ever found yourself stepping just up to the line of wishing ill upon some of these folk? Perhaps your heart is not nearly as wicked as mine. Perhaps a psalm like Psalm 109 can show us the 
gravity of the injustice and then remind us the gravity of the call of the gospel that we are to long for their salvation and not their destruction. And secondly, under this fourth point, that when the wicked intractably continue in their evil, these curses here portend that which the Lord will visit in the last hour upon the wicked. That day is coming. And we are given an insight into this. Now, we're not going to go back there and look, but please note mentally or in your notes that in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 15 through verse 20, Peter is speaking to those numbering in 120 or so, and they are gathered together, and Peter begins to speak, and they are replacing Judas. And Peter quotes Psalm 109 as the fulfillment of God's judgment on Judas. So just parenthetically note this, that one fulfillment of Psalm 109 is when Judas dies suddenly and is judged eternally by God for his betrayal of Jesus Christ. That is a fulfillment of Psalm 109. And that is a foretaste of what is to come for any and all who are outside of Jesus Christ in that last day. Sobering, isn't it? A divine intrusion of holy justice. Well, all of that was introduction. Here we go. Strap on your seatbelts. Four things that I want you to see in the psalm itself. First, David's complaint and ours. I want you to notice in the Hebrew that your English words, O God of my praise, are the opening of the psalm. In many respects, that's important. It is therefore emphasis. Our English editors have have put the phrase, Be not silent, O God of my praise, but the Hebrew begins with, O God of my praise, the literal opening. This is the foundation stance of David's heart before any other thoughts, even these troubling thoughts, are spoken. Now David's going to return to this in verse 30 and 31, but all of the grief and all of the cries and all of the pleas that occur in the rest of the psalm are sandwiched between this resolute thanksgiving and praise and trust. Notice in verses 2 through 5 that David is under an all-out assault on his character. Now let me ask you, just reflect. Have you in your life ever been in the place where everywhere you turned, there was an all-out false condemnatory assault on your life? Have you ever been there? Most of us perhaps have not. Notice what he says, lying tongues accused him openly. David feels ringed around by a group assault. You may have noticed in the the psalm that David moves from speaking of a wicked one who was assaulting him, and then he moves to the plural, those they who were assaulting him, and moves back and forth. He, in return for love, is accused of wrongdoing, and he is rewarded evil for good. And I want you to see something amazing. 
Verse 4, in return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. Look at the bottom of your page if you have a note there, and it says, but I am prayer. Literally, the Hebrew is, I am prayer. In the midst of this all-out assault, which he has just, in short phrases, laid before us as the extent of the suffering that he is going through, he says, I am prayer. While his enemies attack him and his soul is deeply troubled, he turns to the Lord in a plaintive cry. I came across this in Charles Spurgeon while I was studying, and I think it's beautiful. Listen to his description of this in verse 4. He became prayer as they became malice. This was his answer to his enemies. He appealed from men to their injustice, to the judge of all the earth who must do right. True bravery alone can teach a man to leave his accusers unanswered and carry his case to the Lord. I want you to hear that phrase again. True bravery alone can teach a man to leave his accusers unanswered and carry his case to the Lord. It takes an incredibly brave soul to leave unanswered the public accusation, wrong though it may be, and carry our case to God. That's beautiful. And so let me ask you by way of application, examine yourself. Is this to be said of you? Is this the bent of your soul's spiritual response in grave affliction? Are you I think all of us might have to say at some point, we are not. I am prayer. But I would say to you that there will be no comfort for us in such affliction as this, apart from prayer. Second, David's complaint, and we learn that we too can bring our complaints openly to the Lord. And indeed, that's where our complaints belong. But second, David calls for judgment and our cry is for justice. The imprecations in verses 6 through 20, that is the invoking of judgments upon this man and these accusers, David is expressing anger at the injustice and the affront, which is unfounded, things of which he is innocent. You'll find comparable outbursts in Jeremiah and also in the book of Job. These are, as I said earlier, recorded for us in part to learn deeply the depths of the realities of injustice and wickedness but also the great demand of the gospel that we bless those who curse us. And oh, does that not throw us back onto an utter dependence on the Holy Spirit? When you are being unjustly accused and when you are being lied about publicly and when there is a... Uh, a surrounding of the dogs, if you will, about you 
and there seems to be no place to turn, nor anyone to turn in your defense, it is incredibly difficult not to strike back in vengeance. Look with me at verse 6. Appoint a wicked man against him. That is, David is saying, Lord, appoint a wicked man against this wicked man to be his accuser in court so that he might taste his own medicine. But here's something that would be easy for us to miss. In the Hebrew, in the second part of the stanza, verse 6, let an accuser stand at his right hand. That's the Hebrew word, Satan, from which we take our English word, Satan, our accuser. It is no accident that David asks that the one who accuses him might be accused. And in Zechariah 3, which Christian read, there is an accuser standing at the right hand of, or at the side of Joshua the high priest, as if in a court to nullify the priest's calling and duties because of his filthiness. We'll come back to that later. David says, let even his prayer be counted as wicked. Now, that is a condemnatory statement, isn't it? It's, it's as if to say, Lord, will you make the heavens brass and will you make even this person's prayers wicked? Now, verses 8 through 15 are the bulk of the imprecations, the harshest form of the curses appear here. So the grief and turmoil that David fears, feels should arrest us here. Now, I want you to follow along with something that is, I think, a significant application of what's going on in the life of David. We are told by many scholars, not the least of which is John Calvin, that all of the emotions of the human soul appear to us in the Psalter. And so what we see happening here is that because of the accusations made against David, David's soul is profoundly troubled and he explodes in this anger, this righteous anger, if you will. Now here's the application. I want you to see what our evil done to others might stir up in their hearts. This is a clarion warning to us against doing grave injustice to others. Do you see what might happen in the heart of another believer, even an unbeliever? But certainly a brother or sister in Christ, when we go about the business of unjustly gossiping and accusing brothers and sisters of things untrue, do you see what might happen inside their soul? that we would be the cause of. We should be afraid to harm others through the stirring up of such difficulty in another's heart. The grave injustice that David experienced prompted this explosion in his soul. And dear brothers and sisters, I would suggest to you that every one of us at some point in our lives has done this to someone else at some level. 
our own misuse of language, our own judgment of their character, unfounded, our own gossiping tongue has produced this kind of ugliness within another's heart. We ought to be careful. This imprecation is stunning. It is sweeping across the whole face of this man's life. His property, his family, his legacy, his reputation, his death. I wrote this in my notes. David, in a sense here, is calling for the earth to be swept of any morsel of this man's former existence. frightening. And I think we ought to read this psalm with trembling. In verses 16 through 18, there are more reasons that David gives for this judgment. The man showed no kindness, but he pursued the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted to death. Whoever this man was and whoever this cabal of people were, who were accusing David, they were of such an evil heart that they bled and hounded the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted ruthlessly even to their death. They were full of curses, absent blessing, and so David asked that the tables be turned and that they would wear cursing as garments and be soaked with cursing. Well, let's learn here that as believers, this side of the Savior's cross, that in the power of the resurrection and the life of the Spirit, this same form of prayer is not available to us. But, We may pray that God, for his holy honor's sake, listen, we may pray that God, for his holy honor's sake, will do to the evil in his own time and in his own way what they justly deserve. But the fullness of the gospel prevents us from taking the exact language of David In progressive revelation, which he lacked some of, shall we say, and using it in exactly the same fashion that he did. Now, let me say this to be explicitly clear. Am I saying that what David is calling for here is a divinely sanctioned, though sinful, response of David? I am not saying that. I am saying that under the progressive revelation that David had in his epoch of redemption, this is truly biblical, truly holy in the right understanding of who it was spoken by and into the context to which it was spoken. There is no sin here in this psalm. Let me be explicit. 
But would our taking this psalm in its exact words and using it exactly as it is today be appropriate for the believer in the gospel age? No, it would not. We have a higher calling. The eschatological moment, that is the end times moment, that is the age in which we live as New Testament believers, must not be missed. There is sweepingly painful judgment that David calls for here that will in its purest form be carried out by King Jesus when he separates the sheep from the goats in the last day. When Jesus sends the goats into everlasting ruin, this is what will happen in multiples of infinite divinity. That's the foretaste. It is a righteous cry understood in its biblical fullness. That those who are recalcitrant in their rebellion will have no true lineage after the execution of God's judgment. When the new heavens and the new earth come down, the name of the wicked will be wiped away. The judgment that David calls for here, listen, is a dim foretaste of the divine judgment that is to come. If that does not sober us, nothing will. Then I must close. Fourth and last, we come to David's personal plea and to our personal prayer. We see it in verses 21 through 31. The mood of the psalm changes drastically. David appeals to the Lord to act on his behalf. And he has three grounds quickly for his appeal. First, in verse 21 and 26, he says, Lord, Yahweh, for your name's sake, act. Because of the promise of your steadfast love, your chesed love that will not ever go away, Lord, act. In other words, what David is saying is, Lord, your reputation is on the line, not mine. You're the God of these covenant promises. You're the God who has promised to help his people. And so this is how we too may pray. Lord, protect your great name. Whenever we are going through injustice and suffering and difficulty and we are tempted to pray in dishonoring ways, the way in which those prayers may be purified is that we pray the honor of God's name and the goodness of God's steadfast love that he might come and help us for his sake less than for our own or more so than for our own. Second, David acknowledges his weakness and need. He acknowledges that despite his kingly office, he's still a broken man with great weakness. In humility, he asks for help. But I am poor and needy. My heart is stricken. I'm gone like the shadow in the evening. I'm shaken off like a locust. You've been walking somewhere at night, whether it's in the woods, if you're hunting, or you're walking uh, on a hike with someone, and all of a sudden... 
you go through a patch of, of long grass and you're assaulted by any number of insects or a whole host of, of locusts and you begin to shake them off. And David says, that's me. I'm like a locust shaken off, like the shadow that is now gone because the sun has set. In humility, he asks for divine help. That is how we can pray. We can pray with this kind of new humility. And then finally, David stands in faith, seeing the day where he will praise God in the assembly of God's people for his deliverance. Look at verse 30. With my mouth, I will give great thanks to Yahweh. I will praise him in the midst of the throng. He sees the day when in the assembly of God's people, he will see his deliverance. And we too can pray with faith, asking the Lord for our deliverance and to allow us to see the day of our deliverance. And so in a minute or two, I want to end with this powerful contrast. I hope you have... Look at, let me read verse 31. Hopefully you'll see it. For he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. Look back to verse 6. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. You see the contrast. At the beginning of the psalm, David says, I've been unjustly accused. Oh Lord, appoint an accuser, Satan. Another wicked man to stand and accuse this one. That he might be found guilty and be able to taste his own medicine. But at the end of the psalm, what is David saying? That God, Yahweh, will stand at his right hand to be his deliverer. You see the contrast. That the wicked will be accused and they will be judged. But God, by covenant mercy, will stand at the side as the advocate of his people. And so Christian on purpose read the Zechariah passage. It is a vision. Joshua the high priest is surrounded in the same sense that David is surrounded by Satan. And God comes and says, Satan, I rebuke you. Twice God says, I rebuke you. But Joshua had nothing to say because he was clothed in filthy rags and he knew that he was guilty. He knew that he was unclean. He knew that he could not represent God's people in himself before the Holy One. And the angel of God steps forward and clothes him, commands that he be reclothed, and a new turban is put on his head to crown his body with a cleansed arraignment. He was sinful. He was unworthy. And I quote one scholar to bring it all to a close. If you see David's psalm in the light of Zechariah's vision, you understand that in the divine scheme of things, you and I are not righteous people being unjustly accused by the wicked. But rather, we are the wicked who are being rightly accused for our sins and who need the redemption of God. Thanks be to God that Jesus has become our righteousness, 
our holiness and our redemption. 1 Corinthians 1.30. In Psalm 109, you need to see Jesus. David shows us Jesus as truly the only one who has ever been unjustly accused. David shows us that Jesus is the only one who can stand at our side as the wicked. And as Paul puts it, be the justifier of the ungodly. And David shows us that there is one alone who will stand in the last day. And as he by his grace covers a multitude of his covenant people with his righteousness, he will bring to pass justice. Nothing that requires divine justice will be left untouched. Jesus is the great fulfillment of Psalm 109. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to take language like this psalm. Use it rightly, use it wisely, but use it boldly. Father, give us deep compassion for those of our brothers and sisters who suffer in these ways. Be their keeper, their rear guard. Lord Christ, be their deliverer. We ask it in his name.